Well, when Ben and Sarah first heard about Jesus, they were pretty skeptical. Uh, and, I mean, I can't really blame them, right? Son of God, all that. It's, it's kind of difficult sometimes. Some of you probably feel that way right now, right? That it just seems all a little bit far-fetched. I get that, okay? And, and, and Ben and Sarah, they were skeptical at, at best. But they had this friend who believed, and this particular friend, he wasn't pushy or anything like that, but he would just sort of, you know, patiently, gently share with them the story of, of who Jesus is. And they could tell that there was, there was something different about this, this friend. And that, that made them curious. And eventually their, their friend, you know, built up enough nerve to invite them to church. And it was there in the midst of this strange community, right, of, of people who, who really love Jesus and who actually love each other, that the pieces began to, to come into, in, into place. The light began to turn on. And eventually, they weren't just hearing about some strange superstition or, or rumors of resurrection. They could actually see Jesus lived out in his people. And over time... They believed. And they all lived happily ever after. Not a chance, of course not. We know better than that. Several, several years had passed. And they, they weren't naive, right, Ben and Sarah. I mean, they, they weren't expecting life to just be all rosy after this and smooth and easy. I mean, they, they had seen firsthand, they knew that sometimes Christians' lives get harder in following Jesus. They'd seen that firsthand. But what they didn't expect was this sense of restlessness. Over time, I don't don't know if it was they just kind of got bored with Jesus or or maybe a little bit disillusioned, and that kind of was the hardest part for them in many ways. They they couldn't actually put their finger on why. They just knew that, that something wasn't quite there anymore. They'd given up a lot to follow Jesus. Frankly, it was only getting harder. Sarah had recently been mocked and then abandoned by one of her closest friends. Ben had been passed over for two job promotions, convinced it was because he was a Christian. And they knew that that was fairly minor. They had heard other parts of the world, right, that there are those Christians who are, are abused, right, who are completely mistreated, imprisoned, property taken away, beaten, some even killed. And I also knew it was just a matter of time, right? And others in their small congregation, their little family of believers, some of them had already quit. Friends of theirs, good friends, they left. And they, they didn't just leave the church, they left Jesus. And for the first time, Ben and Sarah were thinking about doing the same. I've got to tell you, I can relate. I mean, most of us probably can at, at one time or another. And kids, students, if you, if you can't relate, you will at some point. There'll, there'll come a point when you start asking some really important questions like, why do I believe all this stuff? And is it really worth it? 
Those are, those are normal questions. There's nothing wrong with you. Doubt is a normal part of faith, and yet if you don't have the, the handles to be able to wrestle with those questions, boredom can set it off. Temptation. Disillusionment in the midst of, of suffering. It's really pretty easy to drift. And I know some of us right now are asking those same questions. Right? Just like Ben and Sarah. You believe, right? Right? And yet, it's just gotten a little bit cold. Or you, you feel it somehow cooling off, right? Maybe you didn't even recognize that until you began to think about it, even in this moment. Yeah, maybe, maybe there is something there. For others, others of us here, maybe, maybe you don't believe, right? But you're considering Jesus, just not quite ready to take the next step. Or maybe you're just not sure how serious to take this faith. I mean, the life Jesus calls us to is pretty radical. Either way, the question that we need answered, you and I, the question is, is Jesus really worth it? Is he worth it? I mean, I've given my life to this. I'm raising my kids to believe this. I have a whole list of things I'd like to do but don't because of this. And, and all the, the time and, and energy spent all because of, of, of this. My one life spent following some guy I cannot see, obeying a book that's ancient, devoted to an institution, the church, that, well, it's messy to say the least. So yeah, I want to know. Is Jesus really worth it? And Ben and Sarah were this close. Their faith hanging by a thread. Well, a few other details about them. Um, they, they both came from a, a Jewish background. Uh, so for them, if they were going to, to take a step away from Jesus. It was likely to go back into that. They had seen that, uh, their, that Jesus was kind of a, a fulfillment of their, of their Jewishness. Now they're thinking going, going back and, and leaving Jesus behind. Another thing about them, they lived a really long time ago. Um, back in the 60s. Not the 1960s. Some of you are like, good. Yeah. The 0060s. Um, A.D. A long, long time ago. They weren't alive at the same time as Jesus. They came just after him, but eyewitnesses were still around. People who had seen Jesus do these incredible things, who had witnessed the resurrection. You see, I mean, we forget this sometimes, right? But Christianity did not start with a bunch of people talking about what they believed about Jesus. It started with a bunch of people talking about what they'd actually seen with their own eyes Jesus do and accomplish and say. In the early church, they all believed that Jesus was coming back like any minute. I mean, he did say he was coming soon. It had been three decades. We're used to Jesus not returning. They weren't. So add that to their disappointment. It was another Sunday morning. They missed last week, so reluctantly... They got out of bed, sat down in their little congregation, 
These people were like family to them. And the preacher gets up. And he starts his sermon with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's only one sentence in the Greek. The first sentence of what is widely considered the most eloquent, most thoughtful sermons ever recorded. So important that God decided that this, this belongs in my book. We know it as the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We sometimes refer to it as a letter, uh, but most likely it started off as a sermon and then eventually began to be passed around to the, the churches and took kind of that form, but it has much more in common its writing style with a, a sermon of that day rather than a letter. Preached to a small congregation of mostly Jewish Christians in or near the city of Rome. It's a sermon that we're going to take the next 24 weeks to talk about. And we don't know who wrote it, who the preacher was. We had lots of guesses, none of them really worth mentioning, I don't think. And we don't even know that much about the, the first hearers, like who was there, and, you know, this Ben and Sarah. It's like, was, who, was, who was there? We don't, we don't really know. We don't know who, but we do know why it was written, why it was preached. It's because some were drifting away. For, for, whatever, for whatever reason, it was, it was getting harder, right, to be a Christian. And some were growing disillusioned. Some were bored. Others overwhelmed by temptation. They're just disappointed. And so the preacher reminds them of one thing. Just one. It's a thing that's as true for us as it was for them. Friends, you cannot do better than Jesus. That's the message of Hebrews. Ben and Sarah, you can try. You can return to your old customs and and Jewish traditions without Jesus. Sure, you can do it. You can backslide. Any of us here, right? You You can give up, drift, and every one of us will look somewhere to find our security, satisfaction, and significance. We're all always looking for those things, aren't we? But you can't do better than Jesus. That's the message of Hebrews. That's the, the answer to, to my question and yours. Yes, Jesus is worth it. And the author is going to spend 13 chapters telling us why and how. In fact, 25 times in this book, uh, we'll see the words more or greater or better, all referring to Jesus. That he's the better priest, the better hope, the better covenant, the better promise, the better sacrifice, the better life. He's better than the angels. We'll, we'll hit on that one next week. Better than Moses. Better than anything you can possibly fill in the blank. And we already see it in these opening words, right? Still in his first sentence. Four things. Why is Jesus better? He's better because he is the story. 
He's better because he's the author of the story. He's the director of the story. And he's the hero of the story. Can't do better than Jesus. First, Jesus is better because Jesus is the story. Everything that God has been doing and saying has all been building up to this one person, this one moment. The Bible isn't merely about him, right? He isn't just God's messenger. He is God's message. That's that's where the author begins here in in verse 1. Let me read it again. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He got spoken lots of times, lots of ways, right? The, the prophets. And, and last year, if you're here with us, we, we journeyed through the whole Bible together, Old Testament and, and New Testament. We read a lot of those stories. And the Old Testament's great, isn't it? I mean, and the author of the Hebrews loves the Old Testament. In fact, reading Hebrews is kind of like reading the Cliff's Notes of the entire Bible because the author so beautifully weaves together both, both Old and New Testaments here in this, this one place. It's masterful at that. And yet, the Old Testament's hard, isn't it? We, we know that. We, we recognize that. And the, the author here, he says, but now... God has spoken through his son. So that he's discarded all those old writings. We, we know better than that. That's why we spent so much time last year in the Old Testament. But, but now there's something new, something to, to bring focus to, to all of it. Not just messengers about God. God himself has come. Because you know, the Bible only tells one story, right? said that a few times, right? It tells the story of of a God who comes to rescue his people. That's the story, every page. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all. That's why all my sermons are the same. Spoiler alert, sorry. That's that's what you're going to get, right? Every every sermon I preach is going to be about Jesus because he he is the center of every part of of this book. That's why, so last year, hopefully you noticed when, when we preached about Abraham I mean, it was really about Jesus that we talked, right? And Rahab and Joseph and Moses and David and Nehemiah and all those places that we journeyed together through this great book, it was still all about Jesus at the end of the day. They all point to Jesus. God spoke in whispers through the prophets. Now he speaks boldly and clearly through his son. That's why John 1, for example... Uh, Many of us probably read that this week if you're reading in the new reading plan uh, along with us. We read John 1, and John there, he refers to Jesus as the Word of God. He calls him, that's his nickname for Jesus, the Word, because he's the embodiment of God's message. And if you're considering Christianity... If that's where you're at this morning, kind of just trying to figure it out and see if it's, if it's the right thing, and you want to know how it's different from other religions or other philosophies, it's, it's Jesus. Christianity is not a, a series of rules or rituals, a list of things we try to do to make ourselves better or to feel better um, or to give our lives value. That's what every other path is, but that's not, that's not Christianity. At its core, Christianity is about a person, God himself, who comes to rescue. Now, of course, we don't know who these people were sitting in that ancient church that day. But I can only imagine it was people just like this Ben and Sarah. 
And I can't help but wonder if part of their struggle was God's silence. Because again, put yourself in their shoes. Three decades, right, after Jesus, everything that they'd seen and heard and, and hoped for. And, and the New Testament wasn't written yet. I mean, pieces of it were, and some of it started floating around. But I can only imagine they felt God's silence in those moments. Waiting, wondering. We, we know what that feels like, don't we? And we know how painful it is when, when you pray or when you expect something from God and it just seems flat. Some of you feel the terrible weight of that. Even now in this moment, it hurts. But God has spoken. And the story he always tells is Jesus. He is the story. But he's also the author of the story. Not a mere man that God used to accomplish his plan. Not just a good leader or a nice teacher or a misunderstood revolutionary. He's the author of the story. And we'll see this more clearly when we get to, to Hebrews 12, right? Where the author uh, says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. But it even comes out here right away in verse 2. As it continues, it says, Whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Heir of all things. It means it all belongs to him. Everything. All of it. I mean... If, if you look at the, the Greek here for all things, it means all things. That's it. Not a, there's not a single thing in your life or in our world that doesn't already belong to Jesus. That's not already his. Which really just makes sense if he's the author of the story, right? It, it's, it's his story. For it was through him. Do you see that there? For it was through him that God the Father created the world. Jesus existed before the world began. That's a hard concept, right? To even get your mind around this baby born in a manger that we just spent so much time celebrating and, and all of that, that he always existed. And in ways that we cannot possibly fully understand, our God who exists as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, decided to create. And Jesus made it happen. He invented DNA and laughter and love. The stars were his idea, and so was food and and sex and music and even really ridiculous things like ostriches. And emus, I mean, what, right? Really beautiful things, sunsets, beaches, freshly fallen snow. These were all his idea. This is his story. It's the one he's writing. And just think about for a moment what that would have sounded like to this group of first century followers of Jesus who who saw Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish background, but were were considering taking a step back and, and leaving Jesus behind. Imagine what those words would have sounded like. It's, it's either the most ridiculous heresy you can possibly imagine, this carpenter from Nazareth, or it's the best news you can possibly even think of. And there they were, hearing those words. What, what would that have been like? He's the author of the story. That means he knows the whole story. He knows your story, 
where it's headed. Frankly, he's the author of your story too, which, let's be honest, feels a little bit offensive to most of us, doesn't it? Especially in our sort of Western culture, we want, we want to be the captain of our own destiny and, and all of that. We, we pretend that we're in charge, that we're in control, that we have all of this all figured out, but I mean, how's that working out for you, right? If this really is who Jesus is, you know, and the preacher wasn't just out behind the church smoking crack before church began. If this really is who Jesus is, I mean, who else would you want to be the author of the story? Really, you? Me? Come on. Really? You can't do better than Jesus. Do you trust him? Or are you still looking for something better? But, you know, being the author of the story really isn't enough. I mean, it's a lot, right? But it's not enough. Last, last week, Kelly and I saw the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, it's about um, the author of Mary Poppins deciding whether or not she wanted to sell the rights to Walt Disney to make her story come to life, right? To put it on the big screen. It sounds really boring, I know, doesn't it? Even to describe it, it sounds terrible. It's really a good movie, actually. Um, I liked it a lot. Um, but that, that was, all, that was her, her problem, right? Her focus was, I'm the author. I've made this story. I love these characters, this, this imaginary world. And the thought of trusting them to somebody else, she was convinced that they, they would get ruined, lost, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't make it, that the life would, would, would end, it would be over. Which, if Jesus was just the author of the story, we should have the same concern, right? So what? He wrote a good story. Big deal, right? I mean, who's going to make sure the story ends well? That that it actually happens the way he envisioned? Well, also Jesus. Because he's the director of the story. I mean, Hebrews, the author here, he clearly believes that Jesus is God himself. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I really think you can do better than that. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of his nature. For example, Jesus said while he was still on earth, he said, I and, and the Father are one. And if you want a picture of who God is, it's Jesus. The clearest, most trustworthy thing that we can say, if you want to know who God is, it's him. Look at him. He is God. And I love this part. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Might be my favorite part of this whole intro here. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. How big is the universe? It's pretty big. I mean, the Milky Way, for example, right, that's just our galaxy, and many would say that there are billions more galaxies just like it. But just, just our galaxy, just the Milky Way, if you were to cross it, traveling at the speed of light, which, of course, we all know is 186,000 miles per second, right? We all, <laughs> thanks, Google, right? Um, traveling at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way. That's just one galaxy in the universe. With a word, he upholds them. 
with a word, he, he keeps the universe from spiraling out of control with the strength of his pinky finger. Which, by the way, means this isn't exactly somebody you invite into your life to be your personal assistant. He's not somebody, if you're just looking for a hobby, looking to feel good about yourself. Some, 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 he's not somebody you take seriously only when you feel like it, right? Sunday mornings, you know, it's New Year. We should, he, that's not who Jesus is, right? If he upholds the universe with the word of his power, he's somebody to take seriously. And again, think about this ancient church hearing those ancient words. They're in the midst of persecution, and it's only increasing. They are watching people they know suffering, and it's heating up. And just even just the, the, the perils of living in the Roman Empire and the, the, the unknown of what that must have been like, the lack of safety that they must have felt, hearing those words. And yeah, our circumstances are different, sure. Of course they are. Are they? I mean, not in, not in the fact that we still worry and are anxious about everything. I mean, the, the most recent article or uh, issue of The Atlantic uh, magazine, this is the, the feature story, right? Surviving ex- anxiety. I've tried therapy, drugs, and booze. Here's what, here's what helps. Makes you kind of curious to read it, doesn't it? But he g- goes on. One of the first things he says in the article is that the number one mental illness in America is anxiety. And whether, whether you struggle with it as, as an illness, and I, I don't at all want to make light of that at all, um, but all of us, or at least most of us, know what it's like to worry, and we worry a lot. I worry a lot. I worry about my kids. I worry about money, my health, my, my, my wife's health. I, I worry if I'm a good enough father and a good enough husband, a good enough pastor, a good enough friend, a good enough Christian. I mean, how much of our lives are spent worrying but where else should I go? What else, what else should I do? Yeah, some of us will always struggle with worry and anxiety. And yet, we can't do better than Jesus. He's the director of the story, God himself. He sustains everything. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That thing that's stressing you out, I think that's keeping me up at night, He's got this. He's in control of everything. There's not a single thing in your life that will ever surprise him. Nothing will, will throw him off guard. Oops, dropped the ball on that one. No. And so do you trust him? Are you still looking for better? All right, so now, two things come to my mind at this point. I mean, if this is who God is, who Jesus is, um, two things pop into my mind as I was writing this out. I was thinking, first, I mean, okay, yeah, he is better. I mean, if this is true, you just can't, you can't match this. But the second, you know, immediate thought that popped in my mind is, yeah, but if it's true, what does a God like this want with somebody like me, right? I mean, how, how do I possibly fit into this scheme of things? But the preacher tells us it's because Jesus is also the hero of the story. Look, look how he ends this section in verse 3. He says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
that through his death on the cross, he has made a way for this story to become our story, for us to be accepted in his sight, to be loved and to to be entered into the relationship that we were created for. And I love even that it says that he sat down at God's right hand. There are two images there that I think are important. One is this, this, this sense of authority and power that he is sitting at God the Father's right hand. But it also is sort of the, the image that, that he's, he's sitting. A lot of the commentaries talk about this. He, the work of purification is done. He sat down. That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are pure, righteous, holy. Even when you don't feel like it. That that is, that is his gift to us through simple faith in him. That is what his death and resurrection has accomplished for us. And this is a reason, okay, this, this one, this purification, this is something that the author of Hebrews is going to come back to over and over and over again as we look at this. It's so important to him that Jesus is better. And here, here's why. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite stories in the gospel. Uh, it's, in, it's in the gospel of John. I think it's around chapter 6. Um, I love this story. It's, so Jesus is still on earth, right? It's, he's at the height of his popularity. People are following him like crazy. Um, I mean, droves of people are following him. And he's doing his thing. He's teaching. And, and Jesus, I mean, what a teacher, right? And healing people. And kind of classic him, right? He begins to tell these people who are following how radical this life is that he calls them to. The bar that he sets the unbelievable um, way that this, this life of following him is different than anything else the world has ever known. And at that moment, hundreds, maybe thousands, it's, it's hard to know from the text, get up and they walk away. It's just too offensive. Jesus is just too hard. He's too, he's too offensive. He's too wacko. And they, they start leaving, wandering off, going away. And in the midst of this, right, think about Jesus there watching people as he's preaching just start getting up and going. Please don't. He turns to his disciples, the 12, and he says to them basically, you guys too? You guys going? Is that it? You guys going to quit? Giving up? I love what Peter says. He looks at Jesus. He says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I love how, how raw Peter is, how human he is in that moment. I identify with that, right? In the midst of, of doubt or struggle or temptation or my own sense of inadequacy or whatever it is that, that keeps me away. Be able to stop and say, you know what? Where else would I go? I mean, look at the other options. Only with Jesus is there salvation. Only with him is there forgiveness of our rebellion and our greed and our pride and my, my selfishness, my arrogance. Only with them is there hope. I mean, don't you just want to say, right, Ben and Sarah, hold on. Don't, don't give up. He is better. Friends, your biggest problem, my biggest problem, it's not self-improvement. We, we think about self-improvement a lot this time of year, right? New Year's resolutions. Anybody, Right? Come on, nobody? Yeah, you're just too embarrassed now. Me too, okay? I think I make them every year because I actually enjoy disappointing myself, right? Um, of feeling like a failure in like two weeks or whatever it is, you know. But that, that's not our, our biggest problem. We, we focus so much on self-improvement. We, we want to improve ourselves. This is a bad thing. It's just not our biggest issue, right? Or, or maybe we think it's, it's money or family or marriage or work or some, some of those. Those are important things. I just, 
This is not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we constantly, I constantly run away from the God who made me. I flee him. And yet he comes chasing after. And he has made a way. Do you trust him? You can't do better than Jesus. And some of us here, we know that, right? You've been, you've been around long enough and, and doing this thing long enough. You, you know that, we believe it, and yet we're not that great at living it out, are we? Um, you could probably come up just like I could, like a whole list of things, right, that compete for this in my life. The other things that, even though I say, yes, Jesus is better, the other things that I treat as if they are better, right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We all have those things. Things that I ask to give me what only God can give me. Some of us are like, are like that. Others, others of you, you're just not convinced, right? So this guy says, Jesus is better, big deal. How does he know? Uh, I get it. You need more time. That's, that's fine, okay? But regardless of, of where you're at this morning, I think the response is the same for all of us. Uh, three things. And I'll be quick here. We've got the next six months to flesh these out. But I think all of us need to, to walk away from this text with three things. First, we need to know the competition we need to make the comparison, and we need to choose the better. Let me just talk quickly about each of those. Know the competition. I mean, for Ben and Sarah, it was running back to their old ways, their Jewish customs minus Jesus, right? Everything that, that had been safe and secure for them before, everything that they'd known and rested in the heritage that they had, and also the safety that they would have in the Roman Empire as a result of, of doing so. That's not a temptation for me, right? That's, that's not where I'm headed. I have other competitions, Things like approval, you know, whether or not people like me or whatever. Family, work, food, I love to eat a little too much, leisure. All kinds of things I run to over and over again to tell me that my life is worth living. What's your list? You've got one. Take inventory. Money, sex, work, a particular relationship, a, a certain hobby. Oftentimes, I mean, really good things, right? Family, good things. They're just not ultimate things. Because Jesus is better. So know the competition. And then once, you, once you've done that, make the comparison. I think oftentimes we kind of stop off there. We, we know what the problems are, but we don't know why they're problems for us. Why do we keep running after those things? Um, what is it about those things that keep you going back over and over and over again? Typically, I think, I think the reason fits into one of three categories. Uh, it, it either meets the need for security, significance, or satisfaction, which we're, we're wired for those things, we long for those things, um, and we run after things to give us those things. For example, food satisfies me, right? It makes me feel happy, right? It satisfies me. Work makes me feel significant. So when you, when you have your list, ask yourself, what does this thing promise to give me? Security, significance, or satisfaction that Jesus also promises. Because, I mean, Jesus promises all these things, doesn't he? Promises satisfaction, life to the full, even now. Food, leisure, sex, stuff, all make that same promise, don't they? And Jesus promises security. Better than money, better than the biggest army, better than the best doctors. He holds the world in his hands and has already defeated the, the, the worst enemy, sin and death. Significance, 
man, we want our lives to matter, don't we? We want people to like us. We want to fit in. We want to be respected. But if you belong to Jesus, God is your father. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is your brother. Do you really think success or family or approval or work is going to tell you that your life is worth living? That it's going to give you your meaning? You are already accepted by the God who made you. Make the comparison. And then, choose the one that's better.